question. I just want to reiterate uh, that right there. It reminds me of uh, when Gabe and I were ordained together um, back in Dallas and were sent out then uh, he um, to D.C. in disobedience. Um, not really. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just such an honor, and it's so fun to get to work with Gabe and Mike. Not only are they very gifted servant leaders, but they're men that love the Lord and men of high character. And it's just such an honor and so exciting to work with these guys in, to, in planning Scarlet City Church. And uh, with Scarlet City Church, one of the things that we really value is building relationships with people in our community, getting to know people. And anytime you're making friends, there's inevitably the what do you do question. <laughs> what, what's your career? And I, and, and I love um, having to answer that. Actually, sometimes it's kind of awkward uh, saying that I'm a church planter. And, and you see people, especially in Clintonville, because there's not really a value among many uh, in, in attending church in the first place. And they hear church planter. And you see in their mind trying to connect that to their grid of careers. And, and, and like, if he had said insurance salesman or business banker or bank robber, I would know what to do with that. <laughs> But church and planter, I, I'm kind of missing the connection. In fact, one guy actually said to me, he, said, he, he asked me, he said, um, so does that mean that you garden at churches? And, and I wish I wish I'd re- said, yes, I'm a church horticulturalist. That's exactly what I do. Actually, it would have been good if I had said, okay, all right, don't so much think of um, planting, church planting. Think of giving birth to a church which I'm sure he would have had an image in his mind of me in labor, and that would have been bad. And so that's just awkward now. So let's move on. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Open your Bibles. One of the cool parts, though, in that conversation is getting to talk about why we're starting a church and what that even means, and to talk about the fact that all churches at one time were a church plant. Every church had a beginning. It started with an idea and a vision among a community of people of what could be and what God would want to do in and through them. But not only that, each church, even though each church plant, even though it's something new, it's really just a new expression of an old faith. Even though we're starting a new church, the mission and the message and the legacy that we possess is nothing new. It goes back to when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to all the nations making disciples. And as a church plan, we kind of live in that tension of on the one hand being new and young with all the hope that tomorrow holds. And on the other hand, wanting to be faithful to the legacy that's been passed down to us. And I found that a lot of church plants, unfortunately, in in church planters, they kind of embrace all that is good about being new and young. So they want to be cool and relevant and, and all of those fun words. But they miss, they miss standing on and embracing the faith that they're really a continuation of. They're just a continuation of the same gospel movement that started with Jesus. But that tension between young and old isn't, Just something for churches. I mean, we see that in relationships all over the place between young people and people wiser in years. You have young people, they look at their parents and their parents' generation. It's kind of like, yo, man, come on, bro. Man, you have no idea what my life is like. You don't understand. 
what the pressures I'm under, you know, all right, I'm glad you're on Facebook. That's so 2005. You know, I mean, you need to, like, you don't get it. You don't get me. And then we've got um, people a little older and they look back at young people and it's kind of like, what happened? <laughs> what went wrong? I mean, why is your hair that color? Or you call that music that sounds like racket and screaming. Don't understand. <laughs> so you have this tension and this lack of trust. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this is from the Disney Pixar movie Up. And yes, I will unashamedly use a cartoon to illustrate a component of our vision. And in this movie, Up, we meet Carl. And we meet Carl as a young boy and he has all these dreams of, of traveling to these far off places. And he meets a girl, and she is similarly crazy. And they want to travel to these wonderful far-off lands. And, and they grow up, and they get married. And then we see their marriage, and they have highs and lows like everyone else. But then we see Carl when he's older, and his wife passes away. And he's bitter. He's looking back. He's looking through the pictures, mourning the fact that they didn't ever reach their dreams. And he's also mourning the fact that they never had children. They had never had anyone to continue the legacy. So Carl decides that he's going to do it. He's going to travel to some far-off place, and he does what any sane guy who can't afford a plane ticket does. He attaches thousands of balloons to his house, and it launches into the air. And while he's flying in his home, he meets a young boy named Russell, and Russell kind of mistakenly happens to be in the house. And so the story, the movie, is about this relationship between young Russell and, and old Carl. And at first, they don't trust each other and they're annoyed by each other. But then they grow to realize that they need each other. Young Russell needs a father figure in his life to teach him how to pitch a tent. And to teach him how to be a man. And Carl sees young Russell as the boy he never had. And his opportunity to have fun and get to know this young boy and teach him how to grow up and to be a man and to continue a legacy after he's gone. Another great illustration of how the young and old can come together and have a relationship in the way it's designed to be is in the relationship between the Apostle Paul and a young pastor named Timothy. And that's where we find ourselves here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in this letter here, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Paul is in prison in Rome. And this is actually Paul's last correspondence. He will be martyred. He will be killed for his faith in a matter of weeks and months. And Paul is wanting to pass the baton on to young Timothy. Timothy who had gone on missionary trips with him. Timothy who he had been discipling. Timothy, who Paul placed in leadership over the church in Ephesus, Paul is wanting to pass the leadership baton onto him and say, continue the gospel legacy. So that's what this letter is all about. And it's summarized here for us in the first eight verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4. So let's read these here. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so we see here, Paul, give Timothy this last charge. Begins in verse 1 uh, with that statement, Paul saying, I charge you in the presence of God. And, and we're going to return to verse 1. I don't want you to think we're going to miss it. We're going to return it to it at the end. But let's look at that charge that Paul gives to Timothy and to us today. We see five commands in verse 2. Paul writes, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And this first command Paul says we need to preach the word. And a lot of preachers love this verse. <laughs> um, they, they use it to, to say we need to preach the Bible. And, and I can understand why they would say that because that's kind of what it says there. But uh, really um, what Paul is meaning here, the word for preach is literally to proclaim. And word here he's using synonymous with the gospel. Paul is charging Timothy to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And now a lot of times we can say this. Okay, go bear witness to Christ. Proclaim the gospel. But I find that there's often a little confusion on what the gospel really is. Or we have a skewed understanding of the gospel or only see one component of the gospel. And so I want us to take just a few minutes and talk about what the gospel is. And I'm going to share with you a, a definition given by a pastor in New York City called Tim Keller. And, and I share this with you because it's a good definition, but also because he's a great pastor and he's written a few books and he has sermons. And anytime you can get your hands on them, I would encourage you to do so. But he gives this definition. He says this, the gospel is God has entered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we could not achieve for ourselves, which now converts and transforms individuals, forming them into a new humanity and eventually will renew the whole world and all creation. This is the good news, the gospel. I'm tempted here to want to launch into a sermon on what is the gospel, um, and I'll refrain. But I want to share just a, a few things succinctly about the gospel. I think the gospel really has three important components to it. First is the good news of what God has done in history. In fact, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion and literally means good news of a historical event. And so the Christian gospel is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world, taking on the cross, dying on the cross, and defeating death. Done. It's happened. That is very good news. And the second component of the gospel is, is what it means for us when we place our faith in the work and record of Jesus Christ, that we become converted, that God gives us a spirit to transform our lives, and we have now a new identity before we were enemies of God, and now we are his children. So the gospel is the good news of what God has done, what God is doing in us, but also the gospel is the good news that God is renewing all creation, beginning in Genesis and the beginning of humanity, culminating in Revelation. God is in the process of making all things new. 
So the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, what God is doing in our lives, and what God will do in making all the world new. So Paul entrusts us. He says, faithfully proclaim the gospel. And then he gives this second command. He says, be ready in season and out of season. And this really connects back to the command to proclaim the gospel. Paul's saying we need to be on high alert to be ready to share the gospel. In fact, um, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And I see a lot less Steeler jerseys in here than nine. And that's a good thing, if you ask me. (laughs) Gabe, on the other hand, whatever. He likes the Steelers. Packers, I hear that. All right. Bengals is what we ultimately want to win. But, so, so we need a football illustration. Um, anyone here ever play uh, linebacker on defense? Uh, one of the first things you're taught is to keep your head on a swivel. Right? You need to be alert to your surroundings because people could come and block you. you. You might have to guard against the pass. You have to be on high alert because so much is going on around you, you have to keep your head on a swivel. Paul is charging us. He says, man, y'all need to keep your head on a swivel. And be ready, be on high alert to be willing to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a friend named Tom, and he was a legend uh, for sharing uh, the gospel in his gym. He would frequent this gym, and he got to know everybody there. And uh, I remember uh, one story where um, a new guy comes in, and we'll just call him the new guy. For all of us who have moved, we may be offended, but we'll nonetheless use that. So the new guy comes in, and, and, and the new guy starts benching. And the weight gets too heavy, and and the bar just kind of falls on his chest, and he can't get it up. And Tom walks over to him, and he picks up the bar. He lifts it up just a little bit, making him still struggle. And he says to the new guy, he says, Sin is like this weight. You can't lift it off on your own. You need God to take it off for you. And then he picks it up and racks the weight. And, And I love that. I love that, that he was that witty and ready on just like that to go over and in a way connect this experience that this guy is struggling with to the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and if we're honest, I think a lot of us, we, we kind of get hesitant. It's like, okay, all right, go proclaim the gospel and be ready to do that. But a lot of us are nervous because we think that that means we have to be like this Jesus salesman. You know, kind of moving in for the kill and uh, you, you have your lines and you get to this question and, and it's this kind of sales pitch and... And I understand there's, there, there, there is a place for some of that. I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that's all bad, but, but I think a lot of times we can, ha- we can have a gospel conversation in conversation. A gospel conversation in con- yeah. Uh, looking to have a conversation and bring people back to the redemptive themes of the gospel. Any conversation that has anything to do with current events, pain, suffering, relationships, can be brought back to a redemptive theme connected to the good news of Jesus Christ. One that I love uh, talking about is movies. Every great movie and every good story has what? It has a conflict. There's a problem, and someone or something, a superhero of some sorts, needs to come into the devastating circumstances and provide deliverance. And we live in a world crying for hope and a redeemer. We live in a world of natural disasters, war, pain, and death. And everyone's honest in admitting the fact that we need something. We need someone to come and deliver us from the plight that we're in. And in the Christian gospel, we have the good news that Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, hero, one who has come into the world and provides ultimate hope and deliverance and redemption. And that is good news. 
So Paul has charged us to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And he continues now in verse 3, or in, in verse 2. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And these three commands really come under the umbrella of being willing to disciple people. Paul charges us to faithfully make disciples. And the first component of this is reprove, which, which has the uh, meaning of being willing to confront sin. And this isn't easy. <laughs> Uh, to be willing to lovingly look someone in the eye and say, bro, man, the way you were addressing your wife, I do not think that that was godly. Or, or to a woman to say, hey, you know what? You're demanding that your husband be here and all I hear is criticism and where is grace? Or, or to a single person to say to them, whoa, why are you dating that woman? Are you just wanting what she can offer you? Are you guarding her heart and treating her like God would want a man or a woman to treat a man? Are you treating him as God would want you to treat that person? And this doesn't mean confronting sin. I mean, we all know people are like the Holy Spirit police. You know, they're kind of firing off, hey, sin, I call it out. You know what I'm saying? Hey, and, and, but they fail to see sin in their own life. No, that's not what this is about. This is about lovingly confronting sin in the life of someone. And then Paul says, rebuke. And the notion here is being willing to confront false teaching. And a positive way to say it is to be willing to stand on orthodoxy. And a lot of us love to have spiritual conversation. We love to talk about God. And I'm no different. Um, growing up, uh, I was kind of the crazy heathen. Uh, everyone in my mom's Sunday school cl- class was praying for me. I was one of those guys. Yeah. And, um, and, and God really transformed my life in college, which is why I'm so passionate about uh, ministering to college students and young adults and why I believe in the sovereignty of God because I was never smart enough or wise enough. I needed God to totally come in and deliver me from, from the life that I was in. And God brought a man uh, to begin to disciple me. And I was spouting off all kinds of things about God. You know, it was kind of a mix of Oprah and the fundamentalist church background that I came from and Star Wars. You know, it was just all kinds of crazy ideas. <laughs> And, and, and Brian was his name, and, and God bless him, you know. It's just like, whoo, what do we, where do we begin? And, um, but he was willing to say, you know what? I love that we're having the conversation. I love that we're talking about God. That's great. But let's not settle for just talking about God. Let's labor to know God for who he is and how he's revealed himself in his revelation in the Bible. Let's set our mind toward that. Let's not just settle for talking about him, how we think he is. Let's get to know him for who he is and to have a right understanding of God and a right understanding of what that means for us and our role in this world. So Paul uh, encourages us to confront sin, to stand on Christian orthodoxy, and then third, to exhort with complete patience and teaching. And I love this. This is the notion of encouraging someone towards spiritual maturity. And the way I like to think about this is is celebrating life change in people. I mean, who doesn't want someone to be there to share when, when, when you're doing something right and for them to say, oh, this is so exciting. Look, before you would respond by doing this and now you're responding by doing this. Look, God is doing a work in your life that's so exciting. Who doesn't want someone like that in their life? Who doesn't want a figure who's willing to lovingly confront them in sin issues and lovingly talk to them about standing on historical Christian orthodoxy and then to celebrate with them at their life is being transformed? We all need people like that in our life. 
Right after college, I moved to Dallas along with 30 other broke and uh, poor guys to go through this discipleship deal with a pastor named Tommy Nelson. And I'll never forget what he said the first night before it all started. And we're getting to know each other. You know, I mean, we're just clueless. It was funny. Um, and he knew that. And he's looking like, oh, wow. And I'll never forget what he said to us. He said, what you hear here, I don't want your money for it. Because you could give me your money, and when this is over, you would have given me something. No, I don't want your money. I want your life. I want you to be faithful to take what you have been taught here and be faithful to teach it to other men who will be faithful to teach other men. And that's exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the same exact thing. So Paul is charging us to faithfully make disciples. And here's what happens. When you do that, that's a movement. That's a discipleship movement of multiplication, which goes far beyond what any one of us could just do ourselves. So Paul has charged us to faithfully proclaim the gospel and to faithfully make disciples. And he continues now in verse 3. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul knew what awaited Timothy. He knew he would be met with resistance. He knew that Timothy would go and try to faithfully teach, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples. And people were going to come up and they were going to say, at first, maybe believe it a little bit, but then they're going to say, ah, no. Hmm, that's not for me. Because Paul knew, he had experienced it in his own life, that when you're trying to be faithful to what God has called you to, you're going to be met with resistance. There's going to be pressure points that come in your life. And when pressure points come, we don't hightail and run. We don't throw our hands up and, uh, well, you know, I mean, they're resistant. They don't want to hear it. You know, I'll just do something else. No. When the pressure points come, we're to remain faithful. And what are the pressure points in your life? Maybe it's not... Someone who just stands up and says, I disagree. <laughs> Maybe it's something not even external to you. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe some of you are here and it, you know, you're just like, you know, I really don't care. Yeah, God calls me to proclaim the gospel, make disciples. Man, I, I'm just showing up. You know, can you be happy with that? Maybe for some of you, it's your stuff. Life is this management of chaos and you have all this stuff and all these things happening that you don't have the time to meet your neighbor, to be able to share the gospel with them or to meet with someone and disciple them or have someone disciple you because you're just managing the chaos that's going on all around you. And as the great philosophers of my generation, B. Diddy, B. B. Diddy, Biggie and P. Diddy, I don't know what his name is now, and May said, mo money, mo problems, you know. Or maybe for you, and I sometimes struggle with this one, comfort and safety. Man, we just want to take it easy, you know? And don't call me to too much, you know? I don't want to sacrifice, you know, like, hey, you know, I mean, I'm showing up in church, and I read my Bible once, and 
you know, I'm a fan of Jesus. Come on. I want, we really sometimes want the comfortable life. And Paul is saying when those pressure points come, we need to be willing to endure suffering to fulfill the ministry that God has called us to. So Paul charges us to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to faithfully make disciples. And when pressure points come, to remain faithful. And now he's going to close it off by giving us his life. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept Remember, Paul is writing this in prison, knowing that death is right around the corner. And I can, I can just feel the passion as Paul's writing this and the emotion as, as he's reflecting on his life and all the beatings he took and all the times people deserted him. And he gets to the end of his life and he says, by God's grace, I was able to give my life as an offering before God. And notice here, he uses this image. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He uses this image of a fight and a race because for Paul, he understood that that the calling of Christ in his life was not to be a mere spectator, but to be a player in the game. Paul lived a life of purpose and mission. He knew he was sent by God into this world. He didn't want to just kind of float through, react into everything. Paul understood he understood he was here with a purpose that Christ had commissioned him and entrusted him with the gospel. And Paul was sold out to proclaiming the gospel and raising up others who would do the same to pass on a gospel legacy. I don't know about you. But I know for me, when it's all done, when, you know, when the end is near, I want to be able to close my eyes and thank God that he worked in me and through me to continue the gospel legacy. doesn't mean we're called to be perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. God is calling us to be faithful. The same is true for our churches. New Life Church and Scarlet, church, Scarlet City Church, one day it's not going to be here. What will the legacy be that we leave? So Paul has charged us to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to faithfully make disciples, to when the pressure points come, remain faithful, to continue to pass on, to give our life to pass on the gospel legacy. And he closes the way he began. Let's look at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul Paul bookends this charge by reminding us of the presence of God. God is with us. God is here now, and God will be with us for eternity and the temptation can be that we get this charge. We're like, okay, open the doors. I'm ready to go do this. You know? And then we try to launch off and do it in our own flesh. And we can't. News for you. You can't. 
But God can. And God is with us. And his power and his presence is what sustains us when we do suffer, when we face rejection, when the pressure points come. We can go to bed and know at all times that God is here. And his presence and power sustain us and enable us to fulfill the mission he has for our lives. And we'll close with this. Matthew 28. You see, Paul's mission and Paul's charge isn't something Paul came up with. He was sent by someone. Jesus Christ. And we have here in Matthew 28, Jesus at the end of his life, and he commissions his disciples and us today with this. He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I love this statement. Matthew is building the case in this gospel that Jesus is the one true king. And Jesus dies and you think he's not. But then he raises from the dead and he says, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with us. And has God been faithful in fulfilling this mission? Who did he tell us to go to? All the nations. All the nations. And what started here as a Jewish movement, explodes. One year after this commissioning, about 3,000 Jews are saved as Peter preaches the gospel. 42 AD, Mark launches on a missionary journey to Egypt. 49 AD, Paul, Silas, and young Timothy are the first missionaries to what is today Europe. 52 AD, the apostle Thomas heads to India. 70 AD, as Jesus predicted, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed along with the city and thousands of Jewish Christians are scattered around the world with the gospel. 80 AD, the first missionaries arrive in Tunisia and France. 86 AD, Christians are recorded in China. 150 AD, the gospel reaches Portugal and Morocco. 350 AD, after years of persecutions, where Christians were being made into torches and fed to lions and crucified upside down. And the, the, the early church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In 350 AD, after all of that, there is now over 30 million professing Christ followers in the Roman Empire alone, over, over 50% of the Roman Empire. 425 A.D., the first bishops are sent to Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. 432 A.D., Patrick heads to Ireland. We celebrate this today by pinching each other and getting drunk on green beer. 596 A.D., Gregory the Great sends Augustine to England and about 10,000 are baptized in one year. 650 A.D., the first church is planted in the Netherlands. 1491, missionaries reach Congo. 1498, Kenya 1537, Pope Paul III orders that the indigenous peoples of the Americas, of the New World, be brought to Christ. And here's their method. By preaching of the divine word and with the example of the good life. 1956. 35 people, including Jerry Falwell, Plant, Thomas Road, Baptist Church. 1971, they form Lynchburg College, which becomes Liberty University. 1985, some of the best and brightest from Liberty University. That's right. Stop that. 1985, they relocate to Columbus, Ohio. 
to plant New Life Church. Their mission today, leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. April 3rd, 2011. The story continues. Scarlet City Church, in partnership with New Life Church and many other churches around the country, will be launched their mantra of people joining God's story of transformation and renewal. Has God been faithful? Are you kidding me? What we're doing isn't new. I love that. The mission. Leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. Same thing Paul was about. And we are here as a testimony of the millions of men and women who God worked through to pass on the gospel legacy. And our prayer, my prayer, is that we would be faithful to the same end. And I'd love for some of you to consider joining Scarlet City Church. If you're looking for a perfect church, that's not us. In fact, we say no perfect people allowed. But if you want to be a part of becoming a part of a new expression of the gospel on the north side of Columbus, we'd love to meet with you after the service. And through all of this, the amazing reality is that God has worked through the whole thing. Let's pray. God, you are so beautiful. That you have worked like you have through the history. With the same message. Offering the same hope. And same deliverance. And God, thank you for using men and women, ordinary people, who were awed by you. And who were willing to sacrifice everything. To fulfill the calling and the mission that you have for their life. God, I confess sometimes I'm really scared. And sometimes we don't know what the future holds, but we know what you've called us to, God. So be our everything. Be our vision, we pray. Amen.